And now, coming to you live from the wilds of the internet, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strawn live with World Fantasy Award-winning author Nedia Korafor on the Coot Street Podcast! I just love that syllable fading out like that. Really? Welcome, Nettie. Uh, second time you've been on Hello. our podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm glad to be here. Nettie okay. is just back from... Uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Nettie has just returned from uh, from the guest of honor gig at my favorite conference, which we talked about on last week's podcast, ICFA. How did you enjoy uh, ICFA? It was awesome. It was awesome. It was um, the the panels were wonderful. It was a mix of academia and speculative fiction that I have never seen before, and and also to hear the academic writing on speculative fiction mm -hmm. was just mind blowing. So it was a really wonderful experience. Good. I hope you'll come back sometime. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Because next year, when you come back, there will probably be people wanting to talk to you about Lagoon, which is which is now out in the UK, but not in the US. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. I, well, I think the, the release date is April 10th, right. but I keep oh, seeing okay. people with it. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'd be out. I don't I'm sure you can pick it up on high streets throughout the UK because I think it's a, a hotter book. So, I mean, tell me, look, it's, it's been a couple of years since you've been on the podcast. What have you been doing since we talked to you last? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, when did we talk? Where was I? Uh, maybe it was probably around Who Fears Death. And um, since then, I've been working on just several different novels and projects and things you know i did a, a comic a, a short comic for one of zara's character or the character of zara from zara the windseeker for dc comics so i did that um and i've written a few other scripts for graphic novel type works so i've done that i've been working on the screenplay for who fears death which has been fun I'll say that with some sarcasm, and um, and of course I've been working on um, on several several novels at the same time, which include, let's see, I of course was working on Lagoon, finishing that up, um, Akata Witch Two, Breaking Cola. I'm really in the middle of the like third or fourth draft of that, and then I've got another one. You know, I've just been working on a lot of different things all at the same time. So, so tell us. Well, the thing I sorry, you go, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. Just like, how, oh, I, I, how did how did Lagoon come come to be a project that's finished now, and and what's its background? Um, well, Lagoon originally started as a screenplay that I was writing for a Nollywood director named Chidi Chikere, and that came out of um, after we had both seen District Nine and gotten really angry about its portrayal of Nigerians. We started talking about what it would be like for aliens to land in Nigeria. You know, so once we started talking about that, then my mind of course started flowing and I wrote the screenplay. And and the screenplay is um, you know, it was with the with the with the small budget in mind and, and trying to keep it in one location and all of that. And so when I was writing the screenplay of this alien invasion that happens in Lagos, because I mean, how can you not set something in that, that city? Oh my God. Right. Seriously. So um so yeah, when, when all of that was coming together, I just, the, the screenplay format felt very constrictive and I just took it off the rails and was like, let me just write the novel because I wanted to put all this stuff in it that cannot be in any Nollywood film with <laughs> any rational, 
anything. So so then it became that. So it, from that point on, it became the novel, and it was it just kind of blew up from there. You know, it, it changed a lot from the screenplay. A lot was added. Mm-hmm. A lot developed and evolved, and all of that. So that's really how that came about. Were the origins of the book more? playful than they norm than, than they would typically be because it sounds like there's an, an a large amount of play involved in the writing of it yes um <laughs> this was uh this was like the opposite of writing who fears death when i wrote who fears death you know i was in a dark place uh, my father had just passed and i was writing this book as a way of coping with his passing And then there was a lot of anger that I had that was wrapped up in that book, a lot of anger from things that I was seeing from other experiences and all that, that kind of um, was, that that was the core of Who Fears Death. Now, Lagoon, on the other hand, uh, after watching District 9, which which is a, it's a, a movie that I love and hate at the same time. There are aspects of it that I find absolutely brilliant. And then of course the obvious aspects that I, that I don't like. And, um, and so that, so this story being a sort of response to that, but also um, the fact that that District Nine had a lot of comical moments, even though they were, you know, it was supposed to be sort of a, it was an alien movie that's fast, fast paced and action and all that, but there were some serious moments of comedy in there, mm. and um, so so that kind of found its way into Lagoon, but also you know mix I, I mixed because I wrote it originally as a Nollywood. Um, script. A lot of aspects of Nollywood got in there, like the high drama, something very dramatic and people always being very emotional and <laughs> exclaiming things and just, ah. So hmm. with this this book, unlike Who Fears Death, I had a lot of fun writing it. I mean, I was giggling and snickering throughout that whole the whole <laughs> writing process for once, That's, which was one, really refreshing. <laughs> it's one of the things I noticed I in reading it. It, it, it was. It looked like it was fun to write because it was. I mean, you've got. You actually have the line "Take me to your leader" in it. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, so so you could see you were having fun. There are comic book sound effects like crunch, splat, boink. Um, there's stuff in it that's. Uh, uh, but but the one thing you mentioned about District Nine, and I, I I have I had a similar feeling to the movie because on the one hand it's a really interesting idea which I don't recall mm-hmm. a movie having done before that, although a couple have done since, that maybe if aliens are going to arrive on Earth, maybe they're not going to arrive in the Washington Mall. Maybe they'll arrive in South Africa. Uh, that's worth mm-hmm. thinking about. Uh, but then there is that portrayal of Nigerians. But then once we get into the culture and society and politics of Lagos, you're not letting Nigerians off the hook much. I mean, you've got these no. street <laughs> gangs called area boys. You've got corrupt politicians. You've got corrupt clergymen. <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean it's all this this is nigeria this is in in particular lagos that's part of it you know i mean you can't have a story in there with without that you know that's yeah. that's something that i i know very well and some of that stuff is really funny okay <laughs> some of the some of the, the corruption um the the religious oh boy Boy, the the the, the um, religious. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of a nice way, <laughs> a nice uh, way to put it. <laughs> the millionaire priests well, and, and reverends who are sucking 
um, the life out of the people. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, it's disturbing, but there are aspects of it that I think are just hilarious. And and it's like, um, you th- these are part of these are part of it. And it's not, it's not that I'm I'm trying to criticize, and that's all I'm doing in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm showing the the, the book take the book shows several, many, many different points of view, you know, and, and if I'm going to write about a place that I love and I am, you know, I, I very much unconditionally love Nigeria, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to romanticize it. I want to write about it honestly and um, realistically, and that would include the blemishes as well. Although the, without giving away any spoilers, which is a phrase I hate anyway. It really ends up yeah, with yeah. some real sense of hope for Lagos. Uh, yes. The, the, the sense that this could be a transformative moment. Um, right. But getting from here to there, you mentioned, okay, you mentioned looking at a lot of different um, viewpoints. That's something you don't usually do. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's something that's pretty common in disaster novels. I mean, the, the classic, uh, I don't know, comet striking the earth kind of thing. Uh, Disaster movies do the same thing. You pick several points of view, and you've done that, but you go wild with it. I mean, you've got points of view from tarantulas and spiders and bats, as well as a lot of different characters. (laughs) Because the book is about the people of Nigeria, the people of Lagos in particular. So people aren't always human. Not all the people there are human. So you've got got the non-human people, which includes animals. If I could have put ba- the point of view of bacteria in there, I would have. So you've got <laughs> you have the point of view of the non-human, but then you also have the point of view of the 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 ancestors and spirits as well, you know. And so it's like uh-huh. this is this is very much, at least my idea of an African novel, an African alien invasion. So if we've got aliens coming to a part of of Nigeria, then, you know, the whole point is that, that what, what makes first contact stories interesting is how do people react, right? So, right. I, so I'm looking at how do people react, many different kinds of people. And so, yeah, that's where all of that comes from. And it seemed logical to me. <laughs> you know. I, mean, I guess people who haven't seen the novel yet have, in Kabu Kabu, there's a story called, I think it's called Moom. Um, and that's yeah. kind of a preview of the preface to... Uh, to Lagoon. So if, if, if somebody wants to read, what I'm guessing is the only, I'm, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here and saying the only science fiction or fantasy story, at least in the last 10 years from the point of view of a swordfish, um, <laughs> they can see that in, in, in that story. And then I guess somewhat modified, it becomes the introduction to this. But, but here's the other question that I have. Um, you've got, there's some, there's some sense, I'm, I don't think I'm giving much away here because you're playing a lot with with science fiction movie tropes and that sort of thing, but but animals, some of these creatures seem to have their intelligence enhanced as a result of the aliens. And as soon as uh, I don't know if I want to say that or not, <laughs> I'll say it for one thing: you, you, you've got a you've got a, a a wounded war veteran tarantula, um, <laughs> who just which is a great concept by itself. He's he's missing a leg, and as soon as we realize what he's become. He gets crunched under a car. I mean, that's that's comical and tragic at the same time. In life, isn't it? It is. <laughs> life. You know, the hero doesn't always survive in real life, you know. But in narrative, because a lot of I was playing with a lot of narrative tropes as well. But in narrative, 
the the one with the gift is always the one that is followed in the narrative in the story and but always survives has to survive for the for the sake of the story but realistically right. you know they don't always survive and and that's what happened with this one and and um yeah that I know the origins of that tale, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that without giving anything. Okay. I guess one thing that interests me is, I mean, Lagoon is enormous fun to read, but it's more than just a romp to, you know, that ha of, of no substance. It's it's about stuff. And obviously, it seems to me, at Laura, I felt reading the book, one of the key things, as with your earlier books, is perhaps to open a window into a world that is poorly understood here in you know, in the West, for want of a better put it, put it, way of putting it. How important is it to you when you're writing a book like this to find a way of presenting Nigeria to the world that isn't the cliche, any, you know, any of the cliched or ignorant misperceptions of it? Mm -hmm. it's, it's very important. It's, it's like, but the only thing is I can't, when I was writing this, I, I had to fight that voice that was saying, um, that that was that had the concern of what Western readers were going to think. I had to fight that because if I didn't, then I know there are certain things that I would have shied away from, and there are certain characters I wouldn't have put in there. It would have definitely limited the the um, the portrayals, the various portrayals that that were in Lagoon, and so yeah. I had to kind of shut that off and focus on trying to show. Um, you know, Lagos as a as a character. So that means showing it, showing all of these different types of voices and different types of perspectives and different sides and complexities of each character. That was that was really important to me. And I and I knew as I was writing them that there are certain characters in there that people, especially Western readers who are trying to be sympathetic, are going to read as either um, caricatures or flat because. Mm -hmm. There, it's like it's sort of like this effect. I can't even explain it, but a sort of effect where they're trying to be so sympathetic that they're missing the point. And I knew that that would happen. But at some point, all I could do was write the story that I knew I wanted to write and um, and show the perspectives and the complexities that I knew I wanted to show, and then not worry too much about all of that, and then just hope that the book holds on its own. Because there's only so much that you can do. There's sure. only so much you can do to, to make sure people are are, um, are viewing this as that that one they're not viewing Africa as a country <laughs> two <laughs> uh -huh. are viewing uh, are viewing Lagos as just this um, poor poverty stricken you know undeveloped third world city you know there, there's the only national, so much the you national can geographic yeah yeah uh -huh. yeah and 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 you know I just it's hard. It's a it's a difficult balance to walk. It's a difficult balance to walk, well, and I expect to be criticized on both sides. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You, you one of the things you mentioned, and I think you should boast about this, but you'll have to pronounce the name for me. Was you're, you're also going to be read by uh, Nigerian readers, and and you just got this terrific blurb from the author of The Wizard of the Crow, whose name you will have to pronounce for me because I I, I would make a tra hash of it. Nagugi is that it? What? Nagugi. Ngugi Wathiango. Oh, I would have said that. I was close enough as it was. Yeah. Um, who's, who's, who is. <laughs> but Wizard of the Crow is one of the one of the great African fantasy novels, I guess, of the last decade or so. Um, 
Oh, and so that's that's very uh, that's very impressive. I'll read it yeah. if you don't mind. Lagoon is a thing yes. of magic and beauty. It grips you right from the opening lines and sucks you into the deep waters of its mystery. The different currents of Okorafor's creation cross, clash, and splash. Curious. He's using the same onomatopoeic things that you do. What next? You breathe with expectation, mm-hmm. thirsting for more. Nettie Okorafor is a master storyteller. That's very cool. It is beyond cool. He's like, he's one of my really favorite is. authors. I mean, that's such a big deal. Like, I, oh my God. I, when I read that, I just had to sit down and take a deep breath. Because aside from him being one of my favorite authors, I've read almost every single thing the man has written. Um, but uh-huh. he's also, Wizard of the Crow is, was, had a huge influence on Lagoon. And um, it's one of my favorite books. And I remember mm-hmm. reading it and just being mm-hmm. in awe of how he had all of these. It, it had he had all of these multi, multiple African voices, all you know, mm-hmm. as this huge, huge mm-hmm. story. The book is over seven hundred pages, and it's. I know. It's and then cool. he's he's experimenting with oral forms and all of that. So it's it's that book is extremely you know was an influence on me. And, I, and when I read it, I read it, you know, the minute it got out, it came out, I, I had my copy and I actually reviewed it, but it has stayed with me. And I, and I wanted to try what he was doing. Cause it's also, it's, it's, it's got, of course, it's got the uh, fantastical and science fictional elements all over that book. And then um, oh, yeah. on top of that, it's, it's highly experimental and it's an African satire. You know, and so it's like I wanted to do something like that. Ever since I read that, I wanted to do something like that. And so to get a blurb from him is just amazing, really. It is hugely impressive, and it it seems to represent he and I guess you and other writers. I'd have Ben Okri comes to mind, I guess. That there's a generation of um, Nigerian and well African writers in general that are that are no longer, I guess, concerned with representing. Um, Africa to Western readers in the way that, say, uh, Achebe was, uh, because everybody who studied uh, any kind of, um, not just African, anybody who studied any kind of what used to be called third world literature in graduate school, I know you did this because I did, you read things fall apart, and which is which is a fine novel. I mean, it's, it's a very Western novel, I think, um, but it's also a novel about the way, uh, you know, about 60 and 70 years ago. So, so we don't mm-hmm. get it, and in, in some sense, reading that today reinforces those ideas you have from those ancient issues of National Geographic. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's. Um, I think there, it's it's changing now. I think um, there are a few of us that are kind of writing other things and adding some because I, I love Things Fall Apart. That's one of my favorite novels as well. I love that book. Um, it's but a great novel. There needs to be. Oh, go ahead. No, it's, it's, it's a great novel. I don't have any problem with it being a great novel, but in some ways, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, and if you want to get me in trouble for saying it, in some ways it's a great English novel. It's a novel that looks like other English novels. It looks familiar, and it's extremely well done, but it's also something I think that European and American readers are comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah, at the same time, it's like that's in the format that it was written, but the story that oh, sure. it's telling... You know, so so it's like he was, he was he's doing what a lot of um, a lot of minority writers have to do. You know, you have to add that element of the familiar to get 
to bring in the the unfamiliar. It, it's like adding some sugar to make the medicine go down. You know, they have to, you have to add that element of th that thing that people can latch on to where they're like, okay, I recognize this. And then you put all the weirdness on top of it. So yeah, Things Fall Apart did a lot of that as well. Um, and what's interesting about uh, Ngugi Wathiango is his son, Makoma, is uh, he writes, he's also a writer and he writes uh -huh. crime fiction. So it's like, you know, just that whole that whole family is just doing stuff for for African literature that is really, really cool. You know, they're adding that diversity that I've been yelling about for, for a long time, that there needs to be more diversity in African literature. You know, mm. I, I don't want the novels that are like the Things Fall Apart or the um, the evolved versions of Things Fall Apart. I don't want those to go away. I want those to still be there. There just needs to be there need to be other other types of stories being told as well. When I was studying, when I was in school, and we've, we, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm talking too much, but, but the, the standard approach to, to what was then, well, Nigerian literature in particular, was the very uh, literate, um, sophisticated, novelistic approach of Achebe on the one hand, or you had the very folkloristic, um, um, almost, um, well, what I'm thinking of is Amos Tutuola, things like the yes, palm wine drink. A lot of fun, huge fun. Yeah. But yeah. you had to choose between one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I love the palm wine drinker, and I've read several of his other books. And I know, yes, um, his his work is deeply steeped in Yoruba folk tales. Right. Um, I've wanted to see. Those stories, but but of course we know how they're written. They're written in a uh, so that's up for debate. <laughs> how they're written? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I know how I feel about how they're written. I don't like how they're written, and I'll just say it. I don't like how they're written. I would have preferred um, there. I would have preferred the writing to be um, unraveled. That's the only way I can put it. Because there are times where I'm reading the Palm Wine Drink and I feel like I'm reading in circles or knots. And it, it aggravates me because I'm I love the stories so much and I want mm -hmm. them to go down more smoothly. But but yet yeah they're written in that way. So yeah those were the two that you that you had to choose for choose from. Um, I think that's changing now very much. So there are a lot of Nigerian um, different types of Nigerian writers, especially young up and coming writers, a ton of them, and um, they're kind of changing that landscape. Although you included a fair amount of pigeon in Lagoon, which uh, once you get into the rhythm, once I got into the rhythm of it, it didn't bother me uh, a lot. But it was—it seems like a risky thing to do. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it so was. And when I sold the book to Hotter, I was waiting. I was waiting for my editor to be like. Nettie, you need to tone it down. <laughs> you know, you just need to tone it down. This is too much because the pigeon English in Lagoon is is unfiltered. It's not, you know, I didn't tone down any of that. So, oh. and I knew, you know, I, I knew that those who know who don't know any Nigerian pigeon English that there can that I could possibly lose them, like really. And um, I don't know. I wanted to put it in there. I wanted it in there, and but my editor came back to me, and she was like, "I want it in there." <laughs> I was shocked. I was cool. shocked and really fresh. I, really cool, really cool. She's like, "I love this. I want this in there. Keep it." And um, all we added was the 
glossary at the end. But I figured, you know, if people can learn, you know, Klingon and Elvish and have no problem with that, <laughs> then, you know, they shouldn't have much of a problem with, with Pigeon English. It's still English. It's just a little, uh, you know, it's got a little a little something in there, a little spice. Well, yeah. And it, 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 it would be difficult to represent it otherwise, I guess. Uh, and, and you don't do it for other characters because it becomes part of the characterization of certain right. characters. But, you know, uh, the, the, it's, I'm glad to see that happening because Nalo Hopkinson was able to do this with some Jamaican dialects and, and novels like Midnight Robber and, and get away with it. And it mm -hmm. seems to me that it's, it's a healthy sign. Yeah, I, I agree. Midnight Robber... Um, at least for me, because I had been exposed, I had been to the Caribbean several times and I knew the rhythm. Oh. And I also listened to a lot of Caribbean music, especially dancehall. So when I read it, I was like, oh, wow, this is very cool. But I remember thinking, how will other readers who aren't familiar with this, will they hear it? Because some of it was like not so much in the way that it was written. It's like you, you had to know the rhythm to pick it up. So I, I wondered about that. I think I think um, that, that the whole idea of including any kind of Creole or um, pidgin English in, in literature, it's tricky. It's tricky because like even in, in Lagoon, I had to decide whether I'd have other characters speak it or not because it's not just those characters that would be speaking it. So I had to decide, like I had to make a, yeah. a very conscious decision whether I'd have other characters speaking in it as well. So it, it's still, it's, it's a tricky thing. I think Nalo really pulled it off nicely in Midnight Robber. It's interesting that that's controversial with uh, with cultures that are um, well non English uh, speaking cultures because in the traditional English novel uh, there are lots of novels Walter from Walter Scott to George MacDonald and others that have heavy Scottish dialect and we're supposed to figure that out you can't really understand a lot of Joyce parts of Portrait of the Artist and all of Finnegan's Wake unless you can hear it in an Irish accent so so it's not as though dialect accents are alien to Western literature. It's just that when people try to represent a culture that's maybe a, a non-white culture, they get in trouble for it, like Joel Chandler Harris did. <laughs> Agreed. And I think the more that it's represented, the easier it will be for people to, you know, kind of relax and just take it in. I think that's true. And did yeah. I hear you say there's going to be an audio book of Lagoon at some point? <laughs> Oh yes, they're working on that now, and I just got the uh, the first chapter, the first the prologue and the first chapter of it, and I cannot wait to listen to it because I have um, uh, it's going to be read in two different voices, and one uh -huh. is by a Nigerian reader and one is by a Ghanaian reader. So one um, a female Ghanaian reader and a, a male Nigerian reader. So they're going to get the accents right on point, which is really I think um, which it, it, it's special because. I think that a lot of readers, I remember with Who Fears Death, a lot of readers had a hard time imagining and hearing the characters' mm. names and certain mm. things being pronounced. And I think that the oh. audiobook of Lagoon will be special in that readers will be able to hear not just those words that, they, that are hard to pronounce, but the accent. Because when I wrote Lagoon, I was hearing it, the voices yeah. that were telling the story, were they had a Nigerian accent. Yeah. So... And, and readers can, and that's not something you can really translate. Not, it's not no. something that I've, I've found a way to do. You can't because it's spelled the same way. It's just spoken yeah. in a different way. So it's like that uh -huh. weird thing between the oral and and text that you that there's no translation for it. So the audio book will be able to do that. So I think the audio book is going to be really good. 
I am particularly curious because I've had one or two experiences in in my life where I've tried to read a book and not enjoyed it at all, and then I've heard maybe the author reading part of it or a relevant kind of adaptation like that, and suddenly the whole text is recast because Mm. you have the accurate context to hear it in. And yes. sometimes finding that context is, you know, not not immediate, and it becomes very rewarding to have an alternate path into the story. Yes, yes, audio. And and right now I'm I'm going through an obsession with audiobooks for that exact reason. <laughs> I've, been, uh-huh. I've been re-listening to all of these these books that I've already read, and then listening to them as audiobook because I I have this obsession with the differences and sameness between oral storytelling and and um, written storytelling. And I've, yeah. I've been experimenting with that a lot. And so that led me to start listening to audiobooks yeah. and see what the difference is when you listen to it versus when you read it. And there have been, I've had that exact experience where there's a book where I'm having trouble getting into it. And then I get the audiobook and I listen to it. And there's something about the way that it's read yeah. and the energy with which it's read that takes me into the story. And then I can go back to the book and read it. And yeah. I'm totally... So, so yeah, I think there's something something interesting in that. There was an example of that that I was uh, that um, actually Neil Gaiman himself pointed this out. But the audiobook of his book on Nancy Boys, which which dealt with a lot of um, dialects that he himself wasn't that familiar with, the audiobook was read by Lenny Henry, the British comedian and actor, and suddenly the book made a lot more sense hearing Lenny Henry read it. And even I think Neil ad- admitted or, or boasted at one point that he could not have gotten the voices. He could not have understood the rhythms uh, as well as Lenny Henry did. Uh, and it, it, I, th- I think, I don't think it's unfair to say that Neil felt that that audio book was actually an improvement over the voice of the printed page. That is really interesting and really cool at the same time and, and kind of hinting at, something I've been thinking about, about the idea that books aren't written by one person. You know, there, mm-hmm. there can be, there are multiple authors and, and there are multiple paths to the story. So that's, that's really interesting. I like that. Okay. I, I am curious, and I want to be careful about how I put this, but it seems to me that sometimes individual writers end up filling a role, a place within the genre where they stand and represent more than they necessarily want to or should be asked to. Do you ever feel that you're asked to, in a sense, stand in for Africa in a way that you're uncomfortable with or that is more than seems reasonable to ask of any one writer? Um... I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say uncomfortable with. I think it's something that um, because of the the state of things and where I've happened to step in, it's just inevitable that that is going to happen. And but all I tell myself is that that it's just for now. And the more that I do, the more that the more um, more other the more others will follow. And once they get in, then it's going to open up more. So I I. I can either choose to be, I can either choose to constantly grumble about being the token <laughs> or, or I can just accept and let that go and keep doing what I'm doing and hope that I inspire others to join and um, then all of that will correct itself and I choose the latter. Fair enough. That's a very healthy attitude, <laughs> I think, because I think to some extent, well, um, the, 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 the more people are doing this sort of thing, 
um, uh, that are writing science fiction from different perspectives, the the less I think you begin to feel isolated. I, I, I remember talking to Nalo years ago that, okay, there's a lively Caribbean science fiction tradition. They've even had science fiction conventions in Barbados, and Karen Lord put that together with um, Toby Buckle. Mm-hmm. But um, but there's but, but there's still the sense that you know for a while you seem to be the only one and I know uh, a couple of times at um, at ICFA we were talking to Sophia Samatar who's who's just discovering her odd role in all this sort of thing and is <laughs> clearly enjoying it a lot but at the same time uh, was she, at the same time she really enjoyed meeting you because there is this sense oh I'm not the only one trying to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it has to start somewhere, and, you know, um, I knew that when, when I, when I started, I started writing these stories because I wasn't reading it, Yeah, I wasn't uh-huh. seeing it anywhere, so once they started getting published, it's like, I, I, I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna kid myself, there was none, okay, <laughs> there were no other, um, there were no other stories like that, there is no African science fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, we can we can point out all the vague references and all of that fine, but there is no <laughs> there's no African science fiction. Lagoon is the first alien invasion set in Nigeria. You know, I, and those are the kind of things that I, I I often don't I don't think too hard about it because it doesn't feel good. It's just no. like how, it's 2014, no. but um. You just keep moving. You just keep moving forward, and and I, I I keep writing the things that come to me, and I try not to let things um, constr- constrain me, and I try not to let 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 people pigeonhole me. That's why I'm always screaming about I don't like this category. I don't like that. I like to do what comes naturally to me because I know a lot of those categories have to do with the fact that there's such a dearth of that kind of writing. So. Um, there's this pressure that I always have to do this kind of thing because of whatever. And so I just, um, I try to fight against that, but I do believe that, that, that dearth is coming to an end. I, mm. I, I, I can see mm. more writers coming up and not just that. I see more people considering it. Even when, um, I had spoken, I met, I met Ngugi Watiango like two or three years ago or maybe four. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking him, if he would ever consider writing science fiction. And he said he would think about it. He was like, yeah, you know, that might be something I'd be willing to do. So it, it's, I think, I think um, that a lot of younger writers are considering it now. I think that a lot of, especially uh, younger Nigerian writers, because that's what I know, where, mm-hmm. who before, who before wanted to be so, you know, they wanted to write this traditional type of, of fiction because they thought that's what got them recognition or whatever are realizing that they can write anything, that they can write any type of fiction and they can write science fiction. So there mm-hmm. was a, um, there was recently an anthology, I think it was Lagos 2060, which was an anthology of, um, of science fiction set in Lagos, you know? So cool. that, that's something that, yeah, and that's something that came out, you know, th- I'm, I'm fairly sure that they were inspired by what I was doing. You know, they're like, okay, let's do this. So, and and I had, I worked with them a bit about, you know, with looking at some of their stories, they included an interview with me in that, but it's like, um, people are getting, the young, young African writers, um, I'll speak for West African, are getting, are interested, Mm -hmm. South Africa is already, you know, well-established with, 
with um, science fiction. And, yeah. you know, I, I think this will change in the near future. It will change. I can I can see that already. I can see the changes already. Well, do you think there's a sense of uh, kind of implicit pressure and on, on on young writers to to follow in the kind of we have to tell the world what the realistic situation is and therefore realism is a is is, is demanded of us because and, and and the idea that science fiction is or, or fantasy is is somehow trivial compared to gritty realism. I know that Chip Delaney came up against some of that fairly early in his career when he was. Um, by some elder writers, it was suggested to him that if you're if you're a talented black American writer, you need to write about the black American American experience in the most realistic terms possible. He's long since become Samuel R. Delaney, so nobody <laughs> argues with him anymore. But do you think there's a sense of that kind of same pressure affecting young African writers? Um, I or think that well, I think that the pressure also comes from the the success of of particular types of African novels and the lack of success of other types of African novels when when certain types of African novels that deal with war and suffering and disease, you know, with those kind of oh. issues tend to be the ones that win the awards versus the ones that deal with, um, you know, less life-threatening um just normal everyday life issues, stories that are normal everyday life issues. I think a lot of African writers look at that. There, one thing that I kind of notice, and um, this is just my observation, um, uh -huh. with a lot of African writers, there is a fixation on prizes and um, who wins these prizes, and that's a big deal. And I'm just like, <sighs> because a lot of the people who win, a lot of the um, the stories that win these prizes are those kind of stories. So that's like what's setting the precedence for how to be a successful writer. I always take issue with that whole idea of being a successful writer. I would think that you want to write your stories. That's the standpoint you should come from, not trying to be famous or make money writing. You're trying to write your story and everything else should follow. So that's the way I think. So I think that's one, one issue. Um, but yes, the pressure to tell your stories um, and what that means to tell your stories is telling your stories kind of pushing back at issues and addressing social issues and cultural issues or is telling your story just telling your story depending on what your story is. I think that um, that is something that I, that African writers have to contend with. I think that also that you can push back politically through science fiction or speculative fiction easily. I mean, it's, those are highly, highly political tools. Those are, those are powerful tools you can use to push back. I mean, I've done that many times. So I think a lot of it has to do with an ignorance of the genre and the styles of writing and different, a lack of, um, uh, not really, not really seeing what you can do and, and not really being all of that, all that imaginative. I think that's also something that might be keeping certain writers from considering doing mm -hmm. something else. Yeah, we would we wouldn't begin to suggest that there are any science fiction writers who are similarly obsessed with prizes, would we? <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't suggest. How, that how difficult is it, Nettie, in your experience or in your view from what you've heard, that for Nigerian writers, particularly, I guess. Uh, to 
get their work out, out of Nigeria and out of Africa into Western markets? Is it a major challenge for them? That's a good question. Um, I know there, from what I've, I've heard, there, there's been a lot of complaint, and there's a lot of complaint about the, the authors that are getting the most, the, the Nigerian authors that are getting the most attention are the authors who are in the diaspora. And then also the, the Nigerian authors who are getting the most attention are the authors who are published in the West. And uh, what does that mean? And then there's also the issue of publishing in Nigeria. There are a lot of problems with publishing in Nigeria, like a lot of complex problems with getting the proper printers and the proper support and all proper support from the government, all of that. So it's like it's, it's tough for um, for writers in Nigeria, but I'm not sure like in terms of getting getting one's work to publishers from while you're in Nigeria. I'm not sure how difficult it is. I would think it's pretty difficult because I know in publishing, a lot of it has to do with being able to meet people in person and being in the right place sure. at the right time. So it's like, sure. so yeah, I would think it's, it's very difficult. And um, I, I certainly keep my eyes open for... Um, for for good Nigerian writers, I keep my eyes open, um, and I, and I listen. And uh, I think a lot of people don't know just how much I listen, but I, I do. I listen, and I keep my eyes open. And if I see someone, then I will kind of extend a hand as well. Sure. But I'm of course one person. But see, that would be the way for it to happen. It wouldn't be just I'm submitting my manuscript to, to no. um, this so and so agent, and I'm all the way in Nigeria. You know, that's very it, it's mm -hmm. difficult that way. Yeah. I guess, I mean, that, that what follows on is, are there then enough channels to help support that? Because if we are enriched as we are when we have more and more voices being heard, it's to our advantage to assist the development of those kind of channels. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of prizes come in, though. Because yeah. a lot of the prizes would offer a publishing contract. They'd offer prize money, all this you know, all of the support. And that's where the obsession with the prizes comes. But prizes are fickle things and they're few and far between. <laughs> you know, there aren't that they are that. Them. They are that indeed. Okay. I think that one of the problems with prizes, though, is, and this has been an issue of debate for at least a couple of decades about the Booker Award in England, is that it encourages people to write toward the prizes, to write the kind of fiction that tends to get prizes. Uh, I've heard right. that said about the National Book Award. I've heard that say about the Pulitzer Prize. The Booker, the Booker comes up more often because Britain does have writers like M. John Harrison and Christopher Priest and people who, you know, in, in, in a sane world would have been candidates for this award a long time ago. Uh, so I, I wonder if the pressure of the awards, okay, the, 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 the people, I mean, there, may, there may be science fiction and fantasy writers who write for the Hugos and the Nebulas, but we won't talk about that. But there might be lots of writers who write for what they think award fiction looks like, and that sounds to me like what you might be suggesting is happening with some of the younger Nigerian writers. Yeah, and one example of that is, the I can't remember the name of the prize, but it was a big prize. Actually, I, I kind of remember the name, but I won't name it. Um, <laughs> it was a large African prize by a I think it was a British publisher, a major British publisher, or it might, mm -hmm. it might have been a major publisher, and part of the um, part of the uh, the rules for the for applying to the prize was that you could not write or you could not submit young adult literature, science fiction, or oh, really? fantasy. Really? 
<laughs> yes. Well, and I blogged about that and made a big, a whole bunch of noise, and they changed it. So. Am I not? Am I? Am I correct in, in saying that the Wallace Inca Prize was for Zara, the Wednesday? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so you wrote a young adult novel, which is fantasy and science fiction. And I want to talk about the way you mix up fantasy and science fiction in a minute. And you managed to get the Wallace Inca Prize. You got the Macmillan Prize for a young adult fantasy story based on a folktale. So that should be kind of an indication to other writers that you can write fantastic literature and still get prizes. Yeah, yeah. That, But before that, there was nothing. <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah, and plus also it's like it's so anomalous, you know, like. Zara the Windseeker is, that's it. And uh, that's the only one that's won that kind of prize. So uh-huh. people can just say, oh, it's just Nettie, you know, as opposed to I can do that. So there's, yeah. you know, I, because at first when, when, when Zara won that, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, okay, this should prove it to people. This should prove it. Look, this is yeah. young adult, it's fantasy, science fiction, all that. And it's not it's not covering it up with anything. It's very much what it is. And exactly. um, this prize is not only for young adult literature. It's literature. So that should prove something. But um, I don't know. I know that young adult literature, at least whenever I, I some some Nigerians totally look down on it. <laughs> you know, they're just like, that's not real literature. You're writing for children. That's not re-. you know. It still has that kind of stigma. And so there's that work to do as well. There's a lot of work. Well, to do. that's there's some work like that to do in the United States and the UK and Australia and Canada and other places as well. Um, yeah. Although I've heard Michael Chabon is the one who's made the point that when you look at genre literature or young adult literature, if you have old-fashioned readers who really just want plots, that's where you have to look. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay, the point I was making earlier. Uh, Jonathan, did I interrupt you on something? No, you didn't, no. Okay. point I was making earlier, and it happens again in Lagoon. It happened, I mentioned Zara, and we were talking about it. Well, it's, it's another planet, but there's magic in it. You just refuse to draw a line between science fiction and fantasy in your works, don't you? Yes, I refuse. Okay, good for you. <laughs> That's great. Why? <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, how can you? Okay, first of all, the 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 fantastical elements, right? I see the world as a magical place. You know, mm. the world is a magical place. I, some um, two doves just landed on my windowsill earlier today, and I'm just sitting here thinking, what are they thinking? They're looking inside. They're looking at my daughter and I, and we're looking back at them, and I'm wondering what they're thinking. You know, I, I'm wondering where they're going and what they're up to. So it's like I just see every there, there's so much there's so much magic and and of the mystical just in everyday life. So that's naturally there, right? So I already see that, and I'm and and you know a cardinal lands on the tree, and I'm thinking, oh, that's Shango visiting. So I, I'm yeah. there's so much of this all already around me, right? So at the same time, I want to set something. So I, I I think like that, and so when I write, that manifests itself as fantasy. Okay, mm-hmm. and so if I want to set the story in the future, or if aliens come, well, then you got the, the, all of that stuff mixed up. It, it's just it's natural, and and I would think that um, when when 
African science fiction really does take off, I think that we'll see more of that because it's it's part of like it, it's it's part of the I, I'm going to generalize about Africa right now. It's part of it the African way of experiencing life is is that the mystical is there. It is part of the mystical and the mundane are mixed. They they coexist at the same time. So have a people who think like that write science fiction, and you're going to see you're going to see the mixing of um, what people consider science fiction and fantasy, just naturally. That's just how it's going to be. And so that's what that's happened it. in Lagoon. Is well, that, sounds cool. Sorry. Uh, is yeah, that based yeah. on, if you like, in a, in a different perception of what science fiction and its tools do, um, where it becomes a cultural flavor rather than a scientific extrapolation, for want of a better way yes. of putting it? Yeah. And, or, or like it's a scientific extrapolation, but from a culture, from a from a different culture. Sure. Yeah. Oh, it's a different a different way of thinking. So it's it's just another flavor of science fiction. Yeah. But I think that one of the things that's interesting, and I mean, to some extent, I've got I've got a lot of thoughts going on here. This is going to be a long podcast if you keep me let me keep going. On the one hand, Africa. African literature in any nationality has never had the good luck that Latin American literature has in having something that could be labeled magic realism, which incorporates both. In other words, is there really, is there an African uh, Garcia Marquez? I would say Ben Okri would be him. Okay, that's good. Younger, a lot younger and a lot more recent. Right. uh, but but there is that sense that you can combine speculation mm-hmm. and myth in the same uh, fiction, which immediately. Well, I, I I know. Well, we don't need to get into this, but I know in graduate school you got a lot of mileage out of magic realism. Yes, I did. Whether you wanted to or not. <laughs> I still give that advice to other graduate students. If you're writing fantasy, <laughs> just call it magic realism. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting to me, though is that your parents basically were scientifically trained um, uh, physicians, right? Um, mm-hmm. so, so you come from a rational, science-fictional point of view, speculative point of view, if you will, a Western point of view. Did you pick up from your parents all the understanding and apprehension of, um, of this kind of magical thinking, or did that come from your grandparents? Where did you get it from? It came from the visits to Nigeria. My parents are were like the, the if, yeah, as you said, they're both highly educated and, um, and, and westernized in a lot of ways and very, very progressive. My dad was very, very progressive. He had three daughters and one son and he didn't see any, any difference. He expected everyone to get a PhD. So he's very, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yes, it was expected and demanded. If you didn't have a PhD in my family, you were looked down upon. So that's, you know, that's what I come from. But my dad's dad was, um, you know, he 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 believed in the traditional Igbo um, Igbo cultural beliefs. You know, he had uh-huh. his shrine in the backyard, and my dad would always talk about it. And my and I had storytelling uncles who would just tell me things about how things used to be. And then whenever we'd visit, you kind of that's when you would absorb all the cultural stuff and all the the mystical stuff. And I'm just I'm the kind of person who listens a lot. I pick up on things and I listen uh-huh. to really listen to what people are saying around me. And I was picking up on all of that 
during visits to Nigeria. And then also once once those visits happen and open my eyes, then when I come back here and there would be events, then I'd listen at uh -huh. those events and I would see I would hear all the cultural stuff and the mystical stuff that people would say in between. And these are people who, who consider themselves Christians because, you know, Igbos uh -huh. are typically Christian. But you'd listen, listen closely, and you would hear all the cultural stuff in between the Christianity. And so I kind of absorbed that. And then I be, then as I got older, I would be, I became curious in um, Igbo culture. I read Things Fall Apart, got curious in how things uh -huh. were before things were interrupted. <laughs> And I started looking that up. And once I started learning about that, then we returned to Nigeria again and I'd see more and I'd know the questions to ask. And so it's like it's sort of like a snowball effect where I just gradually kind of learned things. And mo most of it was from talking and experiencing um, with relatives and not so much directly from my parents, but but um, relatives around my parents. So, so that sounds so, yeah. like that sounds like part of Okada, which is just autobiographical then. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay. There's, there's a lot of me in that book. <laughs> a lot of me. But a lot of me in not just the main character, but like all those, all the characters have a bit of me in them, including uh -huh. Sasha. So, yeah. <laughs> well, given your background and given, given what you just described to us, to us um, your daughter Anya, how is she going to react to different kinds of fiction? Is she going to have to get a PhD? Is she going to think that African science fiction is a part of normally growing up? <laughs> she just peeked out. <laughs> oh! Um, <laughs> get back in there! Um, <laughs> she can come in and say hi. <laughs> Anya! Anya, come here. Come here, Anya. Come here. Say hello. Hi! Hi, Anya. <laughs> hi. Anya! Anya, I, Anya, are you proud of your mommy? Yeah. You should be. <laughs> Terrible question. <laughs> He's like, no, I'm not. She no, not, not my mom. If you asked me, I'd say no. I would have said no about my mom, Anya. <laughs> How old is Anya now? He's 10. 10. Oh, 10. Anya, what are you reading? Um, The Shadow Speaker. Oh, cool. That's excellent. Have you read all your mom's books? No. Which one? Have you read Zara the Windseeker? Yeah. And so, um, go ahead. Oh, I haven't read uh, Who Fears Death. <laughs> I haven't read uh, Lagoon yet, of course. Um, what other books? Akata Witch. Akata Have you Witch? read Akata Witch? No. Akata Witch is a good one. Mm. Yeah, she's waiting for that one. She'll get to that one. Is it interesting, Anya, reading your mom's books and then going back to Nigeria? Uh, yeah. Do you see sort of connections between the books? And, and, and... Yeah. Okay. The type of connections I see is that, like, um, uh, like in a way well it's, it's like a <laughs> yeah they're, they're fun books they're good books to read your mom's a very good writer two yes you're just talking to two people you can go back to <laughs> okay <laughs> thank you thank you 
So as John. we sit as we sit here, like in the week of with Lagoon coming out, I guess one of the questions we have to I, I want to ask is, how likely do you feel it's going to be that it'll have a US edition so that you know US readers can encounter it reasonably freely? Yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm um. I know my publisher right now is working um, very hard, and we're we're currently seeking out a an American publisher since mm. things kind of fell through with Daw. That was originally what was supposed to happen, but but the but things kind of fell through at the last minute with that. So I'm pretty confident that we'll have an American publisher at some point. It just won't be super soon. It's not going to be next week. But, oh no no no! Yeah. But I mean, do you think maybe what sort of like maybe in 2015 it would come out in in the in the U.S. Hopefully. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, and, it's 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 really odd because in many ways this is your most commercial book. You think? I think it is. Cool. Yay. I think okay. People, people are going to see. Uh, I I I haven't sent it to you yet, but I sent it to Jonathan. He's seen my review of it. Uh, people are going to think about things like the day the Earth stood still. Of course, they're going to think about District Nine. They're going to think about all kinds of science fiction movies that they've seen before. Uh, they're going to think about video games, graphic novels. And and you actually you did your master's thesis on video games, didn't you? Yes, I did. Female characters so there's in video. A, so there's a bunch of media filling feeding into this, and it's a it in, in some ways it's a classic uh, Earth invasion. It, it begins, I guess I can say this fairly without spoilers. It begins as a as the most traditional kind of science fiction plot you've written, <laughs> and it doesn't end That's up that way, but it certainly. It, it, it certainly seems to be uh, uh, very appealing to a lot of people. I think one of the things that may be an issue is that it is, it is fun. It is uh, an adventure story. It is multiple points of view. There are a lot of things about it that are commercial on the surface of it, uh, and that sort of sucks you into the ideas you want to get at. The two books it reminds me of, which have nothing in common thematically other than the position in the author's careers, are a novel called Blood Oranges by Caitlin Kiernan, writing under the pseudonym of Jonathan. Can you help me here? Kathleen Tierney. Kathleen Tierney, and 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 Caitlin had just come off uh, an astonishingly powerful novel, um, and was writing something that was kind of an urban fantasy vampire ultra violent thing, and she was having a lot of fun with it. It's a good novel, uh, but. And the other thing it reminds the other the other book it reminds me of, which is equally unlikely, is a collection of short stories by Ursula Le Guin called Changing Planes, which okay. are very, very funny stories about whenever you change planes in the airport, you change planes of reality and you go into a different dimension yes. of reality. Yes. Yes. And I was talking to Ursula about that, and she said, um, "I was at a Wiscon, and she said, "Yeah, who would ever th have thought that Ursula Le Guin had a sense of humor?" <laughs> Of course, she loved doing those stories. Yeah. She was having a lot of fun. It's awesome. awesome. So my sense is that after Who Fears Death, people are going to be a little bit startled at Nettie Okorafor having fun. <laughs> You've got a point. You know, you have a point there. And I did that did cross my mind. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, people are going to want me to have, you know, this this really heavy, intense you know, gut-wrenching kind of story. And that I have more of those in me, no doubt. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, more of, course, of those are coming. I've got to say, though, I mean, 
what attracted me, apart from the fact that I'd enjoyed your books previously, I have to, was the cover of the book. It's got mm. this gorgeous cover on it, and it doesn't look like it's going to be a difficult, challenging, wrenching book. It looked I mean, like it's got squid all over the cover and wildlife going, you know, sea life going crazy and lots of things. It looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, which yeah. has got to help. Mm. Yes, I love I love the cover so much. I love I love the tentacles. That's my favorite part. And there's a shark in there. I love that. I, I love all the creatures in there. I, lo I love that. That that was the, uh -huh. uh, Joey High Five did a wonderful job with that mm. cover. Incredible, incredible. And with all those tentacles, there's a there's a Lagos cityscape in the background. It's like it's coming, <laughs> well, which also uh -huh. helps. I mean, I'm not sort of too ashamed to say that probably in the last three or four years, you are my my most Googled author. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, in when reading Akata Witch, when reading Who Fears Death, when reading Lagoon, I found myself wanting to search for what things were actually supposed to look like. What, mm -hmm. I mean, rather than sort of whatever image you may have or may not have of Lagos, what, what does it actually look like? I mean, it's a sprawling mm -hmm. city of 20 million people or something, which is enormous metropolis, which may not be what someone immediately thinks of when they casually think of, quote unquote, Africa with all its okay. 55 or whatever it is, nation states. Mm -hmm. um, the same with whatever the actual local vegetation might look like. I was trying to find out about Bar Beach because mm -hmm. I've never heard of Bar Beach in my life. I've been there several times, <laughs> and I'm wanting to swim in it and being warned that those riptides will take you out, and then being told that one of my cousins was a victim in there and everything. So <laughs> our beach is, is, yeah, it's a special place uh -huh. for me. <laughs> and in many ways, I'm particularly grateful because to, to you for that, because, I mean, not only have I enormously enjoyed the books, but it's a valuable thing to have your world enlarged along the way. Or, mm -hmm. You know that that's been one of the great pleasures of of Lagoon, of a Carter Witch, of Who Fears Death. Let me ask you because we really you know, normally we try and wind up around the hour, despite what Gary is saying. Mm. What I mean, I know that sort of the most recent book you've had out in the states is Kabu Kabu. Given the you know the likelihood of things, what is the the next book that North American readers are most likely to find on bookshelves from you? Um, it will either be Akata Witch 2, Breaking Cola, or The Book of Phoenix. Okay. Those are two, those are two that I'm working on right now. I don't know which one is going to come first. And they're what, probably like next year, are they? Yeah, yeah. Both of them are next year. So in other and words, book of from, sorry, just, just for, parenthetically, The Book of Phoenix is essentially a prequel to Ufu's yeah. death. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's what I mean, I, that, that I had more of that coming. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, it's... Which also, which also means that from a North American perspective, at least, it's going to be famine or feast. I mean, next year, potentially, you could have three novels out in, in, the, UK, in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> I don't know when that happened. I don't know when all of this happened. I'm still like, I have one novel published? Oh. So, yeah, yeah. And that one, um, The Book of Phoenix will be published by Daw and Hodder. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And the card of which will come from Sharon and Penguin, I assume. Uh, Breaking Cola. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Wonderful. Well, we should look forward to those books. I will certainly say, to, you know, that sort of, from my money, I wouldn't be shocked to see uh, Lagoon on the Hugo ballot next year. I think it's a terrific book. 
I, I think we, we will look and say that it's a remarkably Hugo savvy thing that by having it out in the UK this year and uh, the States next year, you get two years of eligibility. Oh, really? Think about that. There's an upside to every cloud. But, <laughs> but I would encourage everybody to rush out as best they can, whether it be online or off, and pick up a copy of Lagoon because it's a great book. And I, I really loved it. I think it's one of the best books of the year. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I guess with that, maybe we might wind up. Gary? Well, we could go on for a long time, but, uh, <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff we could talk about, but we should probably okay. stop. It's been two years. Hour. We won't let it be two years until till the next one. It's almost exactly two years. It was April of 2012 we spoke to you. Not that long uh, after you'd won the uh, World Fantasy Award. So that was before Cabo Cabo came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, maybe we'll talk to you next, this sort of middle of next year when you have this flood of of books out, and catch up then. Let me let me put cool. one parenthesis in because yeah. it connects you, Jonathan, and you, Nettie, yeah. which is that one of the things I noticed there's there are some horror story elements in Lagoon. One of the things that's fun about it is that there are old science fiction movies in it. There there's, there's African folklore in it. There's uh, and there's also some sort of classic science fiction tropes in it, but uh, there's horror stories. There's a horror story in it, which there's a, and, and Nettie, you'll know what I'm talking about. It reminds me very much of a story called On the Road, which, if I'm not mistaken, you <laughs> yeah. wrote for one of Jonathan's yes. anthologies. Nettie did. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, very yep. there we are. <laughs> uh, I knew you'd recognize oh. that, Gary. <laughs> I knew oh. it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and and hopefully you, I'll, I'll get you to write some more stories for me sometime soon. Oh yeah, certainly. certainly. D- depending on how, how busy you are <laughs> with all these books. Yeah, I'm always writing something. So regardless of how busy I am. So, okay. Yeah. Well, with that, thank you, Nettie, very much for joining us. I'm very, very grateful to you for making the time. It's been wonderful getting to to, to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Okay, Gary. I will talk to you next week, Jonathan. Okay. And with that, we will sign off the podcast and say, until next time, thank you very much. And I'll just turn off the recorder now.